Welcome once again, everyone, to a Baseball America podcast, along with Matt Eddy. I'm John Manuel. Welcome to February here at BaseballAmerica.com and downloading us on iTunes. We thank you for that. The email address is podcast at BaseballAmerica.com. And if you didn't notice, last week in our 70-minute college preview podcast, there were several podcast emails that were read. So we will get to any of those if we have them uh, and send those questions into us at podcast at BaseballAmerica.com. So... The subject of the week, obviously, Matt, is uh, the big trade. Uh, I haven't officially happened yet as we record this podcast. The Mets and the Twins are still negotiating. We waited a little bit later to record our podcast to see if they would negotiate the contract, but the Johan Santana contract has not been formalized as we speak. So this is still a trade proposal, not a trade that has happened, but yet we do need to comment on it here in the podcast and discuss a little bit more in depth the way that Baseball America rolls with Johan Santana going from Minneapolis and the Twins to the New York Mets for Diolas Guerra, Kevin Mulvey, Philip Umber, and Carlos Gomez. Three, pitch, three right-handed pitchers and a tooled-up outfielder who's a subject of much controversy. So, Matt, you're a Mets fan. I did the Mets top 30. We're here to talk about those players. And uh, first off, uh, I guess the, stating the obvious – this trade makes the Mets better. <laughs> this, trade, this trade makes the Mets a lot better. I guess what's your, what was your gut reaction to the trade finally being, uh, you know, looking like there's some resolution to this kind of saga that's really dominated the offseason for the last two months? Well, if you were to pinpoint an area of weakness for the Mets, it would certainly be starting pitcher um, or at least staff leader. And uh, they, they certainly addressed that with this trade without giving up any key pieces for – for next season. That's not to say that, that Gomez and Mulvey and Umber can't contribute in the major leagues, because I think they will next year for the Twins. I think that's what makes the deal perhaps a little more palatable, attractive, if you will, for the right. Twins. See, this is you're actually addressing our podcast question, which is uh, paulpeterson at gmail.com. Paul from St. Paul, who said, as a lifelong Twins fan, he needed our help. Please keep him from jumping off a bridge in response to the Santana trade. So let's, I mean, I think you, you make one point. In the pre-show discussion, Matt, you made another point that I think is a pretty interesting point, and it's a natural comparison to make. Johan Santana has been the best pitcher in baseball for the better part of Four this years. decade. Four years. I'd say he's the best starting pitcher of this decade, even though he got to a late start. Um, and so now you're talking about him going to New York, where he'll be joining Pedro Martinez, who, especially at his peak, was the best pitcher of the last decade in the 1990s. Clearly, Pedro, in the twilight of his career, to use a Dan Duquette phrase, <laughs> but Pedro did finish strong for the Mets last year, probably like the only Met to finish strong, <laughs> And um, but he pitched well. David Wright. That's right. But, he's, but Pedro is certainly not the Pedro of old, but you're teaming Pedro and Johan Santana. It's a great juxtaposition of these two great pitchers and also two very similar situations in terms of contracts and how their career tracks went. And Pedro was traded by the Expos to the Red Sox and one year left in his contract, and now Johan Santana, the same thing possibly happening. Let's talk about uh, the contrast that you've noticed in those two deals. If you recall, it was the 90, 97 offseason. Pedro, coming off the his uh, first Cy Young Award, was traded to the to the Red Sox for uh, Tony Armas and Carl Pavano, who were once pretty big deals. Those were the days. That's, <laughs> that's something that Dan Duquette will never take off his resume. That, that should be the lead story on his resume every year. Pedro, of course, extended for the largest contract of all time at that time was uh, six years, seventy-five million, and the Red Sox were actually paying for his age twenty-six to thirty-one season. So, contrast that with the Mets, who are getting, assuming the deal goes down, are getting 
Santana's 29 to 34 age seasons. That's assuming that's a six year deal. Right. Which has been widely reported. Be rumored anyway. Right, right. <laughs> but look, at, look at the dollar figure the Mets are throwing out. And you have to assume six years because Santana turned down five from Minneapolis, from, from Minnesota. I don't know why I keep calling him Minneapolis. But, uh, it's like, they're not the mid 50s Lakers, you know, I keep calling him Minneapolis. But, um, no, that, that is the amazing thing. I think it's important, I think, for Twins fans to remember the Twins offered him the biggest contract in terms of annual salary that a pitcher's ever been offered. Offered him twenty million dollars, and he turned it down. And then they offered him four and eighty first, and then five and a hundred. And obviously, Matt, they were unwilling to go to six years. I don't think you can blame them, and at the same time, I think you can understand why the Mets would be willing to go six or seven. Both teams have a pretty acute need for Johan Santana. I think every team has a, a need for Johan Santana. Um, but the Mets have more resources to which to make that offer. And the Mets are, are more desperate than any other team that the Twins are going to find as a trading partner. It's just that's just the that's the reality. And as we were talking yesterday, um, I forget what we were talking about yesterday. At this <laughs> no, but, time, but you're, but you're talking about a six-year contract. That's what Pedro Martinez got. You know, like we're talking about ten years ago, basically. Hmm. And that contract uh, worked pretty well for Boston. The numbers, though, financially, it sounds like Johan Santana is looking for close to 150 million, 150 million dollars, which would conveniently be double what Pedro got. A decade ago, and I think you've made important points. Johan Santana has just as much, if not more, wear and tear in his arm than Pedro. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, he's left-handed, but he's also been pitching in the American League, whereas Pedro had been pitching in the National League at that time. And obviously, 1997-96 National League is probably stronger than it is now, but if it still is the National League, you're still facing a pitcher in the nine-hole. You're still facing generally weaker lineups than in the American League. Mm-hmm. Um, and Pedro Martinez um, is, in my mind, a historic pitcher, much more so than Johan Santana has been. Johan Santana has been the best pitcher the last four or five years in the major leagues, but him at his best is not Pedro at his best. No, Pedro did, was better. He didn't dominate to the extent that Pedro did. Correct. And so Pedro uh, Pedro Martinez, that was, a better, that was a better talent. Better, younger talent that Boston was getting at that time, mm-hmm. and in a span of ten years, and they gave up less, arguably. They, and that's the thing. And that's, that's, the, that's where we're kind of headed that, here. And that's the impressive part of it. I think because I have not read this anywhere else, but you, you know, you're talking about, like you said, Carl Pavano and Tony Armas are what Boston paid. Now Montreal had a gun to its head too. They were Montreal. They did not have the money. They don't even. The team obviously has moved. But uh, I would take Kevin Mulvey, Philip Umber, Diolas Guerra, and Carlos Gomez. Over Pavano and Armas, neither of whom had pitched in the major leagues at the time of this trade. Right. So that's a great point to I think to bring up. And now I guess here's the other nitty gritty part of the question: How good do you think this these players are? Where do you think eventually these four players turn into? Uh, we'll start with Mulvey. I guess that's the easiest one to start I, off. I think with. they're all going to be regulars who you're not going to look to replace. Maybe okay. they won't be stars, but they'll be solid regulars. Well, actually, we should start with Umber, because Umber, you did our Pacific Coast League coverage. You talked to people a lot about Philip Umber. Here's a guy with a number four, number three number overall three. pick in uh, 19, uh, 19. Oh, in 2004. I'm about to say 1994. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, it would be rough if he hadn't of the big leagues yet. He'd be the Alan Zinter of pitchers. But uh, you know, Philip Umber has been in the big leagues, uh-huh. albeit briefly, yep. albeit <laughs> in a very difficult situation in which to succeed. What, what's Philip Umber's future in your mind? Do you think he'll recapture some of the, the lost velocity he's had from... From uh, his amateur days? It doesn't seem likely at this point, but it is possible given that he had Tommy John surgery less than two years ago. 
It is possible. He's down 87-91 for the most part now. Still, really got, still got a pretty big breaking ball, the curveball. And that's, that's the thing. is The curveball's always kind of been his best pitch. Yep. So That's why they drafted him that high. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it's surprising that... I, I guess I thought that he had success in 2007. I guess maybe... My, my question even still after doing the Mets top 30 was... I'm still confused as to why he didn't pitch more in the major leagues in September. The Mets had zero confidence in him. He's, on, he's been on the 40 minutes since the day he signed, but they've given him one major league start, and that was out of complete desperation. And that is uh, not a good sign. It, it's That's not. Worth. And it's also important to note that he was Jim Duquette's one and only draft pick, Omar okay. Manaya, the current GM. It does not have the history with Umber, like he does with Pelfrey, for example, like he does with well, Mulvey. He traded Mulvey, but... Right. But we've actually heard that in Omar's career as a general manager, whether he was in Montreal or now in New York, that Omar's roots are as a scout, and Omar likes to trade for guys or trade away guys. You know, his personal evaluation matters to him. Yes. It's not that he doesn't listen to other people, but his personal evaluation is a significant part of it. As we saw with the other key offseason Mets trade, where he traded Millage, Lasting's Millage, the 3 first rounder of the Mets. Right. For two guys he had in Washington, and Brian Schneider and Ryan Church. Right, both guys he had in Montreal, guys that he acquired. And, and Ryan Church is specifically a guy he acquired in Montreal. Schneider, I believe he extended his contract. So that's, yeah, I had not even thought about it in that context as well. So, again, I think Omar's uh, he's going back to his roots as a scout, and Omar trusts himself as a scout. And there's something to be said for that. I respect that. But why do you have other guys in your organization then? you got to trust some other people too. So um, for me, Philip Bumber is a back-of-the-rotation guy right now. And the best thing about it from the Mets standpoint is you trade away a guy you didn't trust. Like you said, they show they didn't really trust him. And, and to me, just like the Twins earlier this offseason, trading guys with Matt Garza and Eduardo and Morlan, who they did value, but they valued less than other clubs because they really just, bottom line, they weren't getting comfortable going to war with Matt Garza and Eduardo Morlan. I hate to use that imagery, you know, those words. But that's really how they felt. They liked both those guys, but they knew other clubs liked them more. Mm-hmm. So they went out and got guys that they, they they used those players, and those were not players they were afraid to trade. They were not. They would much rather trade Matt Garza than Kevin Slowey. They'd much rather trade Walter Morlan than Tyler Robertson or Jeff Manship or Nick Blackburn, period. They really just – and that's, you know, so they were very willing to give them up. So, And that's how the Mets, I think, felt about Philip Umber. I think it was harder for them to part, however, though, with guys like Guerra, Mulvey, and Garcia. Certainly. We rank Guerra at the top of that list. To me, there's Diolas Guerra is the wild card in the difference between the Santana deal and the Pedro Martinez deal of in days of yore that we're talking about. He's a wild card. He could be – there's any number of things he could be. I mean, I, I think it's very possible Diolas Guerra ends up as a closer. Mm-hmm. He's got two-plus pitches right now. If he doesn't develop a breaking ball, he could be – Essentially, a Latin version of Trevor Hoffman. Mm. A power fastball, early career Trevor Hoffman, obviously too hard. Mm-hmm. And the changeup has been a plus pitch since the day the Mets gave him $700,000. Where do you see, though, Diolas Guerra being down the line with the Minnesota Twins? What's your take on uh, on Diolas War? I think he nailed it, you know, unless that breaking ball really comes along. I mean, one thing the Twins hopefully will do is keep him in high A right. for this season. Because he's... He's been moved rather aggressively. He's been accelerated by the Mets, absolutely. Because <laughs> he was 17 opening day last year. He started for St. Lucie, IA. That's unbelievable. He's a high school junior. That's an unbelievable story that he's a 17-year-old. I mean, like, we we point out in our draft cover when a high school senior is only 17. Yeah. Because it's unusual. Yep. And so here's a 17-year-old starting opening day in the Florida State League. 
And he did okay, you know? He did do okay. He did not dominate, but that's to be expected. He's 17. Right, exactly. And then the other part of it for Garrett, the other reason he's a wild card is, and, and it'll be, there will be additional pressure, I think, on the Twins, even in a media market like Minneapolis, St. Paul, and the Twin Cities, where obviously not near the pressure there is in New York, but he's still the highest-ranked prospect in this deal. There will be some pressure to move him quickly, and he's never thrown more than 90 innings in a season. How many innings really should an 18-slash-19-year-old pitch in 2008? In my mind, like you said, he should be in the Florida State this League this year, and a really good goal would be to get him 120 innings. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be like kind of the equivalent of what a college freshman would pitch, and that would be a pretty heavy workload. You know, I wouldn't want a college freshman with that workload to go to the Cape and throw a lot more innings than that. So that's, I think, reasonable. Maybe 120, maybe 130 would be almost pushing it. And that's in high A. What if he goes to Fort Myers and he's repeating the league and, you know, he's throwing 91-95 more consistently and the changeup is plus and he's dominating? What do you do with the Osgara if it's June and he's got an ERA around two in the Florida State League? That's got to be tough to resist that temptation if that happens. Well, the Twins have done a great job offsetting that by getting these three other players who could be in the major leagues next year. In fact, Gomez will compete for the center field job in spring training, more than likely. Uh, What do you think? I I think absolutely he should. And uh, unfortunately for my main man, Jason Pridey, he probably should win that competition. (laughs) Um, Although I think Pridey is quite good. And the the Twins do have other outfield options. The thing is they're quite set on the corners Mm -hmm. with Michael Kadire recently resigned to a pretty lucrative deal and Delmon Young, who we still believe in as a guy who's a unique talent. Center field is basically Carlos Gomez and Jason Pridey. And Denard and Spann. Denard Spann. And Darnell McDonald. I should not forget Darnell McDonald. How about that? I had forgotten Darnell McDonald. But you know Mulvey from doing, doing the Mets and the Eastern League. Mulvey? How, how does he stack up with the guys fighting for the end of the rotation spots with the Twins? You know, Baker, Kevin, Bonzer. That's a great point. You know, To me, Kevin Mulvey is right in line with the guys the Twins are better, better known for right now, the Blackburns and the Slowies. And the uh, maybe I guess the twins are only known for Blackburn in my world, but uh, the Kevin Slowies and then Jeff Manship. And really, I think that's who he resembles the most is Jeff Manship. I didn't really get a great feel from Mulvey in the Eastern League. The scouts I talked to were pretty underwhelmed by what they saw of Kevin Mulvey stuff wide, but the more you talk to people, actually, people who saw him repeatedly really came to respect him. And I think if you really pull back a little bit from just the stuff and just the numbers, you just take the big picture. Here's a guy who threw about 160 innings this year, mm-hmm. maintained a firm fastball and quality stuff for him all year, finished strong with the two shutout appearances in the AAA with New Orleans, one in the regular season, one in the playoffs. And uh, to finish that strong when you're 87 to 91 and to still pitch off your fastball when you're 87 to 91, he's actually got, it sounds like a fastball that's similar to Nick Blackburn without as much velocity as Blackburn, but. With cut and sink, mm-hmm. a lot of movement on the fastball. It keeps the ball in the ballpark. All his secondary pitches are average to fringe average. So in that respect, he's more similar to Blackburn than he is to, say, someone like Jeff Manship, who has a plus curveball. But he has more of Manship's fastball velocity as opposed to Blackburn, who's pushing 93-94 to touch a five. So he's kind of a blend between those two guys in the twin system. And the thing is, he's, he's got some polish. He went from the Big East to a full season in AA in one year. And there's something to be said for that. I, I think the more you really take the big picture and the more you have to respect the job that Kevin Mulvey did. So. And you should mention that he got a late season bump to AAA. Pitched right. In the playoffs too. right, and pitched very well. Yeah. Uh, I think it was 13 scoreless innings and two AAA starts. So so I'm, I was more impressed with Mulvey after talking to the Mets 
than I was just in the Eastern League. And so, you know, consider the source. It was the organization. I think they just had me pull and take me, take them out of just the microcosm of just the Eastern League. If you really pull back and put it in a bigger context, it was quite a year. I still think the profile is number three starter at best, mm-hmm. you know. And I say number three starter as in a workhorse type. The reality of 30 organizations pitching being stretched thin and a guy who's really more – his biggest value is – Keeping you in games, keeping the ball in the ballpark. He's never going to dominate, but being a guy who can give you 200 to 210 innings a year, that's the peak value to me of a Kevin Mulvey. That has value, and in that way, I think he's a little shy of Baker or Bonzer. They have better stuff, but he's been more consistent in his one pro season than those guys were, even as, even in the minor leagues. So um, it's a lower ceiling, more likely to reach that ceiling kind of guy than what the Twins have, and he falls more in with the Blackburns and the Manship. So I think he's a nice bridge because really – uh, Manship has not pitched above a ball, and to me, he still has to prove that he's not just a guy getting a ball hitters out with good breaking balls. He's got to prove he can get guys out with a fastball. Again, not to belabor the point, that's why we ranked Blackburn number one because he can get guys out with a good fastball when they're looking for a fastball, and that's the, the ultimate thing that Malvi's going to have to prove. But I think he does it with velocity and command. I mean, with uh, with movement and command, and he has just enough velocity to get it done. So I'm I'm, I'm more of a Kevin Malvi fan now. Than I was in September or October, so I'm, I think that's a good. I think that's a nice piece to pick up, a better piece than Philip Umber. And then really the last guy, Matt, and a good guy to kind of wrap up the podcast with is Carlos Gomez. Uh, this is a guy that I think you and I are actually higher on than, than the masses. Mm. Um, I, I'm a I'm a Gomez guy, and I think to me, 2007 was almost a wash for him in some ways. In other ways, he kind of proved that he could handle even at a young age and his inexperience the major leagues. He didn't thrive in the major leagues, but he handled it. Yes, especially and particularly when he came back from the injury. When you watched him, he was, his swing was just way too big. Mm-hmm. He's just trying to, to to crush everything. So once he gets that in check, once he's fully healthy, he kind of gets that tendency in check. I think we're going to see a different type of player. But it's also important to note that, like Guerra, he's been rushed absolutely very aggressively. He's, he skipped high A entirely. Yeah, in 2005, this guy was in the Saturday League. Yes, in 2007, he was in the major, major leagues. leagues. <laughs> uh, that's a big jump. And in between, he was not ready for the major leagues last year. But the Mets had injuries to Millage and to Ben Johnson, and they had no other alternative. And that's what happens uh, when you draft a lot of college relievers, and you and the, the, really the Mets. It's a, it's a stark contract between the Mets and the Yankees. How the Yankees have treated the draft, and how much more aggressive they've been in the draft, and how much more willing to spend they've been in the draft than the Mets. And to Omar's credit, I think he recognizes that, and has been kind of forthcoming in saying we have to reevaluate our position. And that's a very polite way of saying, we're spending money in the draft this year. We're going over <laughs> slot. I know Commissioner Seeley gave me my big break and made me a general manager, but you know what, man? I think I'm going to have to – I think he has to – he re- he realizes they have to, I think, make adjustments. So let's talk about the Mets farm system now right. and what they need to do in 2008. Because I think Gomez will be a good big league center fielder by 2009. Mm-hmm. I think 2008, Jason Pride will probably outperform him. I really mm-hmm. do. I think Jason Pride – and especially his bat is more ready for the big leagues than Carlos Gomez. Yes. But I think there's a chance that Carlos Gomez becomes a star. He has to find that um, you know, balance between being overly aggressive and not being aggressive enough for his power to play. I think he could be a top-of-the-lineup guy. A guy at a 350 on-base percentage in double-A at age 21, skipping high A. And he's got blazing speed. There's 360-plus in his brief triple-A time last year. Yeah, and, and his walk rate... Jumped. He's a high percentage base dealer, smart base runner, smart outfielder, and an outstanding defender. A potentially outstanding defender. So obviously, huge arm. Could use a little. Could use a little experience. But I, I like him, and I like him as a piece for Minnesota. 
Mm-hmm. So I think we, I mean, like, he's on the Baseball America bet board. Better <laughs> traded Carlos this offseason, Gonzalez or Gomez. I've got my money on Carlos Gomez. But like you said, to wrap up, boy, the Mets top uh, 30. It took a hit. Numbers 2, 3, 4, and 7 gone in this trade in Guerra, Gomez, Mulvey, and Umber. If I had to redo the Mets top 10 at this point, instead of just moving guys up from the handbook, uh, you'd have Fernando Martinez 1, Eddie Coons 2, and Brand Rustich 3. I believe it's pronounced goo. you got to have to wonder about uh, your farm system when two college relievers, neither of whom were closers at the end of the year for their teams, um, are your numbers 2 and 3 prospects. That said, Matt Myers wrote the story for us last year, our college preview issue last year, spelled out how a lot of college teams are putting their better arms in the bullpen now, and it's not unusual for those guys to be moved into starting roles. And Rick Waits, the Mets minor league pitching coordinator, pretty clear that Brant Rustich was going to be given a, a chance to start, and Eddie Coons is going to be given every opportunity to win a big league bullpen job for the Mets this year with guys like Joe Smith, Stephen Register, the Rule 5 pick, uh, competing with him for that role. Uh, but as a Mets fan, you can't be too happy about Rustich and Coons as your three and two. Maybe maybe we should tell fans, uh, listeners, about some of the, the success stories going from college reliever to major league starter. There haven't been too many. There's two notable ones that we know of from the Blue Jays. There are and Sean Markham and David Bush. Absolutely, and I always thought David Bush would move to the big leagues very quickly as a reliever and be an outstanding reliever. And in fact, I used to chide the Devil Rays now the Rays. For not signing him when he was a college junior, um, he could have gone to the big leagues and helped them immediately, I thought. But instead, uh, to the Blue Jays' credit, those are, in my mind, those are the two biggest success stories of the Ricciardi regime in terms of player development. They took two college raw arms and made them both starters. And Dave Bush was exclusively a reliever at Wake Forest, but they identified that he had a good changeup, and he become a solid league average starter, basically. And Sean Markham had an outstanding year last year for them. This was a guy who was a college shortstop, and set-up man slash closer. So pretty limited looks as a pitcher. It was clear that everyone liked him best as a pitcher, but for him to get to the major leagues and become an effective starter, I think, is a great success story for Toronto and one they deserve a lot of credit for. So can Eddie Coons or Brant Rustich be that? Well, Brant Rustich really has a better arm than either of those guys. The question will be, does he have feel for pitching to equal those guys? But uh, we've had guy, pretty glowing reports about Brant Rustich's raw stuff. And he did throw strikes last year in his pro debut. Um, but I guess the sleepers really for the Mets are guys who now are would be close to, if not in their top ten, guys like Nick Carr, uh, right-handed pitcher was a junior college uh, signee, a draft and follow, a guy like Danny Murphy, a third baseman who really shined in Hawaii winter baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a guy like uh, guys like Greg Velaz or Wilmer Flores, some of their younger Latin American players. And there is always that Duda guy. That Duda guy. <laughs> <laughs> Lucas Duda. <laughs> Mentioning Velos and, and Flores really signifies the Mets' aggressiveness in the international market, particularly Latin America, something they'll probably continue to do. Absolutely, and I think now they have to be aggressive, not just in Latin America, but in the draft. That's the last where, piece. Where they hold call. three of the top 32 picks in June. So if they have an acute need, they really should be players in uh, the 2008 draft, and they need to be, I think, significant players at the top of that draft for elite talent. And you can read about some of that elite talent coming up at BaseballAmerica.com. It's early draft preview time. It is college preview time. We'll break down uh, Then our high school preview will be the next issue. So in the next month or so, Met fans especially can look and preview some of the players who the Mets can try to rebuild their farm system with but in the meantime, I think even at Kenny Williams got some criticism in Chicago for our ranking of their farm system. 
this is one thing I agree with with Kenny. Would you rather be good in the major leagues or have a highly ranked minor league system? You'd rather win in the major leagues. It'd be nice to do both. It's a challenge to do both. You'd certainly rather be good in the big leagues, uh, and I think that's what the Mets are going to be after this Johan Santana trade. In my mind, this will be... Uh, you can compare it to the Heron deal and the Bedard deal, and those ways it doesn't look as good, but those guys had two years up in their contracts. I think the point you've made, Matt, is a great point. You go back and compare it to the Pedro trade, Omar comes out looking pretty good. So, uh, Johan Santana got a parting... Uh, what do you expect out of Johan Santana? Got a, a numbers or a feel for what he'll do in 2008? Want to throw some crazy numbers out there? <laughs> no, I don't want to speculate. <laughs> I'll, I'll just mention the last Mets 20-game winner is Frank Viola. 1990, I believe. Seriously? The Mets have uh, traditionally had some very good pitchers. Um, I believe that was 1990 when he won 20 games. Thank goodness for baseball reference. Yep. 1990. 20 I, don't, I, I don't think that's the longest drought in, of any franchise, but for a, for a big market franchise, it probably is. <laughs> you, don't, you don't care to uh, speculate on uh, no-hitters, no. whether he'll break the no-hitter streak? Yeah, that's the other thing about the Mets, right? I predict that Oliver Perez will throw the first no-hitter in Mets there you history. Go. He'll walk eight. Or, or John Mayne. John Mayne came very close last year. He did. But I'm, <laughs> I'm predicting Oliver's going to have one of those crazy games. Walk eight guys, strike out six. It'll be an A.J. Burnett A.J. Type, Burnett uh, no-hitter, right? <laughs> no-hitter. So, uh, but I think it's a year where it's, uh, a trade the Mets had to make, a trade the Twins had to make. and uh, It's surprising that it didn't happen with Boston and New York in a way, but... Maybe those two teams were just kind of fainting, and uh, Omar waited them out to coup, I think, for Omar Minaya. The sense of timing was good, and we don't know what happened behind the scenes. Correct. We don't know what was out there. We don't know what Johan wanted, what he told the Twins. Absolutely. And, through his uh, agent, most likely. And as, uh, as Terry Ryan said to me uh, about a month ago in this Mike Radcliffe feature I did that's on BaseballAmerica.com, you know, uh, Terry admitted, I left kind of a mess for Bill Smith, is what he said. And so Bill Smith, boy, what a rocky introduction for a general manager this offseason where you go and make – Two huge blockbuster deals where you trade arms like Matt Garza, uh, you get Delmon Young, and then you uh, give out pretty large contracts to Justin Morneau and Michael Kadire, and then the, the Santana trade. What an active offseason it has been in Minnesota. Um, unbelievable, really, to consider the, the, the makeover of that franchise. So um, going to be tough. To, it'll be very interesting to see how they react <laughs> as a team, what kind of team they have in that difficult American League Central Nothing more says nothing says uh, rebuilding more than trading the best pitcher in baseball. So I hope they don't fall into the uh, cycle that Montreal fell into, where they really could never keep any of their guys. But right. uh, the next test obviously will be <laughs> Joe Mauer. So and let's see if uh, when Francisco Liriano if he comes back, mm-hmm. whether they'll be able to keep him long term. Anything else, Matt? Or should we wrap up the podcast? Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap up the podcast. It's podcast at baseballamerica.com is the email address for next week, and uh, we thank uh, Paul Peterson for his email this week. Keep them coming, and we'll uh, keep reading them. Until next week's podcast, he's Matt Eddy. I'm John Manuel. So long, everybody. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.